Batten and Brexit. Hello and welcome to Batten and Brexit with the UKIP MEP for London, Gerard Batten. Hi Gerard. Hello Ian and uh, hello to all the listeners. Uh, this series is brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. Uh, the idea is that each episode, Gerard will talk about the big issues or the big areas of EU policy that have either riled him or intrigued him. And, of course, we'll also have your reactions too. And I know you want to specifically, uh, Gerard, kick off with... Uh, what really is the talk at the moment, the withdrawal bill? Yeah, it's not so much about the EU legislation at the moment, about what's happening regarding Brexit. Last night uh, I met our three UKIP peers in the House of Lords who had updated me on what's happening there because the withdrawal bill is going through the House of Lords at the moment. They debated it last night and it was kind of a record debate. They had about 192 speakers for the second reading of the bill of which I understand only about 10 to 20 were Eurosceptic peers in favour of leaving the EU. So I think that indicates in itself the ratio there, why the Lords needs drastic reform, because it doesn't reflect the um, will of the people and uh, is not reflective of most people's uh, opinions on the subject, uh, you know, with 192 against 10 to 20. You may remember that Lorna Donis had an amendment expressing regret that we were leaving the EU, but that was actually withdrawn. But what it did do is enabled him to have uh, quite an amount of time to actually give his say. He, of course, being an unelected person who's never won an election to anything in his life anyway. Now, there wasn't a vote yesterday, uh, but now it all goes back to what's called the All-House Committee in Chamber, which means, again, they're going to discuss the whole thing in the House again, uh, and they can propose amendments. As the Commons did, uh, you remember when they put up their wrecking amendments, many of which were defeated but the whole process will now be gone through again in the house of lords the bill will debate be debated again in the house of lords from the 21st of february and i think this could go on for up to two weeks there are 10 separate uh, occasions when it will be debated so i believe and then there'll be a third and final reading and the bill will go back to the commons who can then agree or disagree uh, with the amendments, but the whole thing must be agreed one way or another. Commons can only reject the bill outright uh, if it was in their manifesto, which it wasn't, or if it is a finance bill. So there could be no agreement, in which case the bill would fail, um, or they could adopt all of their wrecking amendments, in which we could end up with a complete dog's breakfast of a withdrawal bill. So we don't really know what's going to come out of the process at the moment. Uh, which well, is, the, is the idea, or do you suspect, that many of these uh, parliamentarians are really just trying to disrupt the bill, uh, the theory being that many have that... Uh, they don't want to leave and they think that is if there is enough disruption enough chaos there uh, then eventually you um, end up with a very different kind of Brexit oh, absolutely. from the one you would want. Absolutely. I mean, that's all, you know, I've been talking about this for a very long time. They don't really want to leave. There's a predominance of Remainers in both houses, and particularly in the uh, House of Lords, uh, where quite a few of them are on EU pensions, <laughs> like Lord Kinnock, etc., um, who don't want us to leave and will do everything they can to actually impede it. That kind of leads me into something I read regarding Mrs May's negotiating stance uh, in which she says, uh, it's reported, Mrs May says, make me an offer 
To which Mrs Merkel replies, but you're leaving, we don't have to make you an offer. Come on, what do you want? To which Mrs May replies, make me an offer. (laughs) Uh, And so, according to Mrs Merkel, the two find themselves trapped in a recurring loop of what do you want, make me an offer. I mean, it's it's a farce. What Mrs May should be... Sounds like a sitcom, doesn't it? (laughs) What do you want, make me an offer? It's going around in never, ever decreasing circles. (laughs) But what Mrs May should say is, yes, okay, we'll make you an offer. What we'd like is a continued tariff-free trade agreement where you can have freedom of movement of goods, services and capital, but you can't have the free movement of people. Can we have it or not? The alternative is to go on World Trade Organization terms. Why can't Mrs May say that? It's so obvious. I mean, there aren't that many alternatives to the obvious thing. Uh, what is the reason? Thing, which why, is, why isn't she saying that? I think because she doesn't have a clue. I mean, I've been on a platform with Mrs May. I've, I stood against her in the Maidenhead uh, constituency in the general election. And uh, she stood up, she gave a very professional performance, and I can't remember a single word she said. None of it actually meant anything. And Did I she shake your hand after? Oh, she was very pleasant. You know, we had a coffee before we went on, and uh, she remembered that, actually, I'd stood against her 20... How long ago is it now? 20-odd 20, 20 years ago in the 1994 um, barking by-election oh. when she was the Tory candidate. You've got oh. four been standing against <laughs> me. Yeah, not intentionally, really. It just kind of happened that way. Sure. Um, she beat me then as well, although she only came... F- third i think and i came about six um but no no she she'd obviously been briefed about that uh, and uh, she we had a very pleasant chat and it was quite a lively evening there was about 200 people there in the audience we had some great questions and i really enjoyed it um but i couldn't tell you anything she said i couldn't remember anything she said but she must have you think she doesn't have, amount to anything she'd have people around her that would e- even if you're doubting her um, wisdom or abilities on this one, Jared. Do you, you'd think she'd have people around her that would say, look, you've got to say this or you've yeah. got to take this position. There appears to be very little of that. It doesn't make any sense because, you know, if you're a logical person and you think about this, you're going to come up with, well, especially on the trade thing, there's not much else you can come up with. Do you want continued tariff-free trade? Yes or no? If not, we'll go on WTO terms. It's There isn't much in between, really. So there must be another be reason, then. Yeah, I think she doesn't really want to leave. She's heading a government of predominantly people who don't want to leave uh, and two houses of parliament that don't predominantly want to leave. So, therefore, it's delay, delay, impede, in the hope that if they can delay it long enough, it'll be overturned. Which leads us into this thing about the transition period... Can say a bit can about you just explain that? what that what they mean by transition period? When it starts, when it finishes, and what well, happens in between? I'll, I'll do my best, Ian, as far as I understand it, because um, we're supposed to be leaving on the twenty ninth of March two thousand and nineteen, when the withdrawal bill will take effect. So we're told. But then they want a transition period, which is another two years, and some people are saying it could last three years, uh, in which case, what are we transitioning from? Because if we've either left the EU or we haven't, in which case, what are we transitioning from and to? Um, so that's a bit vague. And this this uh, transition period is very dangerous because, as has been pointed out, we could continue to be bound by EU legislation, by new EU laws. The transition period could be extended for another year or so, up until 2022, which I've been saying all along would take us up to the next general election when they could overturn the decision of the referendum if they wanted to and say, well, we've got a fresh mandate from the people and we're not actually going to leave. That's always been the big danger. Now... And don't forget that it appears that our borders are going to remain open during that period. That's certainly what the EU wants. And Migration Watch have estimated that at least another million people could migrate to the UK 
during that um, my, uh, transition period. And I think that's probably quite a conservative estimate with a small c. And what are we transitioning to? Because there is an argument which I'm starting to look at, which is under the Vienna Convention on Treaties, if we agree to EU law during this transition period, we could actually de facto end up remaining bound by EU law and the EU le- uh, treaties because we haven't made a clean break. So there's there's all kinds of issues here about how you leave, which is precisely why I've said all along we should repeal the 1972 European Communities Act, tell them that we've left, and then explain to them very nicely how it's going to work. Because we are accepting that they're in the position of authority and power to run this, and they're not. It's us, as Mrs Merkel's pointed out, we're the ones that said we want to leave, so it should be us telling them how we expect it to work. And since we want to have trade, friendship and cooperation with them, uh, what's to stop them cooperating with that? At the moment, we're asking them to tell us... And they're only going to have one answer, aren't they? We're going to make it very difficult, the, the, the whole doesn't matter where you stand politically where the whole point of the the eu club the state whatever you want to call it is that you join but you never leave so these guys are it's, it's in their interest to just be fairly obstinate about it and attempt to throw the ball back into our court but our court seems a little empty exactly. of ideas uh, precisely and uh, you know we're asking them how how can we leave please and they don't want us to leave so why would they come up with a constructive answer on the other hand if we said well we are leaving it's going to happen uh, there's a lot of sensible people in um, not necessarily in the european uh, union commission but certainly in the german governments and the french governments will say well they're going to leave so let's make sure that the impact on our uh, economy and our jobs etc is minimized so we need to cooperate with them i mean why wouldn't they they have trade deals with um, 58 different countries around the world as part of regional trade agreements um, they can do deals with those people so why couldn't they do a deal with us indeed the um, article 50 does say that they're supposed to negotiate in a in a, in a spirit of constructive uh, cooperation with the people who are leaving and they certainly don't seem to be doing that at the moment why would they when we're putting all of the um, all of the cards on the table face up so they can see them let's look at that specific issue of immigration because of course that is uh, a huge but whether people like it or not i mean lots of people who voted to leave uh, in the referendum decided to do so not necessarily because they they don't want any immigration they want us to have control over immigration and but, it, but it's still clearly a huge issue absolutely i mean a lot of i think the issue that brought home to people that we were no longer in control of our own country over the last few years was the unlimited immigration and the open borders and that isn't from people who don't want some migration uh, who have something against migrants because they don't it's because in any sensible country you would have a policy that controls who comes in and on what basis who are they Uh, immigration itself is is neither good nor bad it depends on the circumstances the numbers and the appropriateness of the immigration and of course what the eu is asking for i mean mr verhofstadt that i'm sure my listeners will be familiar with who's the uh, MEP, who is the liaison between uh, the Commission and the Parliament on this, appointed by the uh, Parliament, I have to say, he wasn't elected by MEPs, uh, is demanding that we have open borders that for, for, for um, this whole period, but also, when the thing is decided, that we continue to pay benefits, give housing and all rights to people uh, who were born up until the point when we leave, which is ludicrous. I mean, people who've 
only set foot in the country on a day trip uh, once, uh, w- w- were born when we, the day we leave, would have the full rights to everything that we can possibly have to offer. I did point out to him in a committee meeting that was hardly fair since those rights don't exist in most EU European countries and British citizens couldn't take advantage of them because they don't have public housing, they don't have national health services, they don't have the free services that we enjoy to the extent that we do. But anyway, he just laughed that one off. If I can give you an idea about the impact of immigration... In my part of the world where my office is, in the London borough of Havering, they've had a target from the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, to build 20,000 homes in the next 10 years. That's a twin, And the same is true in Barking and Dagenham. That's about a 25% increase in the current number of houses. And it's kind of the equivalent of creating a new London borough. And all of that building of new houses is to take into account the increase in population due to migration. Now, the Office of National Statistics has produced a three-monthly report on uh, national insurance numbers issued to foreign nationals, not British people, foreign nationals. And if you look at those figures for the last few years, it averages out to about 70,000 people per month, which is roughly about 840,000 people per annum. Now, we're told that the gross immigration figure is about 630,000, something like that on average, but the number of national insurance numbers issued is about 840. So there's an enormous disparity between the real amount of immigration and the official figures that we get. Don't forget that the immigration figures are actually an estimate, whereas the national insurance figures are exact. And in fact, there are about 80 million active national insurance numbers in the country today while the official population is only supposed to be about 65 million so we're getting far more immigration than we actually are told from the official figures and everybody knows this who goes out on the streets who tries to drive in the big cities or goes on the tube in london or anywhere especially in the southeast of england you know that it's slowly grinding to a halt because of the sheer numbers of people What country in the world would think that it was appropriate to have unlimited immigration, especially Britain, which is... Well, if you take England, where most people actually live in the UK, why would anybody think it was appropriate that in what is one of the most densely populated countries in the world, we should essentially have open-door, unlimited immigration? It's madness. It's nonsense. And yet if somebody actually says this actually isn't a good idea, they're in danger of being called a racist and a xenophobe. So you're looking at it from a... It's it's just pragmatics. It's just the reality of an increasing, out-of-control population. Others, of course, say, well, actually, we need those numbers because there are certain jobs that need filling. Uh, We are aware already that uh, Brits now have a very different appetite for the kind of work they want. Once upon a time, Brits went fruit picking. Now that no longer seems to be the case. And many people in industry, and you'll have heard these arguments many times before, say that we need these people, regardless of what the problems are with population. We need immigration. Well, um, I don't know of any economic theory that says you can only ensure continuing prosperity by an ever-growing population. What's important is not the amount of your gross domestic product, but the individual share of the gross domestic product as a per capita income. And that's actually going down, not just here, but in America and other parts of the industrialised world. The point you've made there, I think, Ian, is about appropriateness of immigration. If we do need immigrants, then who are they? What are the jobs that we are um, asking them to come and do? And is that on a permanent basis or is that on a work permanent basis? You mentioned fruit picking. Well, there's nothing to stop people coming in and picking fruit during the summer uh, and then leaving 
when they're finished. The reason that they stay is because they're entitled to benefit under the EU system, entitled to benefits, entitled to housing, entitled to National Health Service. So you can't blame them. They're going to stay. If you had people that came in on a seasonal basis to do certain jobs, but they weren't entitled to any of those benefits, there would be no incentive to stay when the work contract finishes. And if you need people on a permanent basis, like doctors or nurses, then you can invite those people to come and they can be selected on the basis of their qualifications and jobs that we can't fill out of the... Hence uh, controlled immigration. So that's a controlled immigration policy which we don't have. We have an open borders, uncontrolled, unlimited uh, immigration system. And that's not just true of the EU. That's true with um, the rest of the world. There don't seem to be any controls on immigration from anywhere else. They're supposed to be, but you go anywhere in a big city and talk to people in the street, you'll find they come from everywhere in the world, and you do wonder how they actually... One of the things that uh, is not amusing, I have to say, is quite concerning, is that the organised criminal gangs in London are now predominantly um, foreign gangs, but they're from places like Turkey, Albania, Kosovo, who are not even in the EU... First of all, how did they get in there? And secondly, why can't we kick them out when we find out what they're up to? That's an unexplained mystery. There is no will to deal with it from our political class. It's interesting, just moving this on and and, and looking at the kind of comments you get on Twitter, uh, as you say, immigration is clearly clearly up there, but also fishing. And we hear these debates about who owns which waters and Mm. where you can fish and do you have to throw stuff back and are we removing ourselves from uh, fishing agreements etc it's extraordinary how many people appear to have an interest and a question about fish yeah that surprised me actually and because i tweeted something on this recently and uh, just a, a remark about what went on in the european parliament in january and i got a hundred and thirty odd thousand views on that one little tweet about something that occurred there. I think it's because it is, it's um, an emotive subject and it's iconic because people can identify with taking back your fishing waters as taking back control of your country. It's about what Brexit is really all about. Now, what we want to do, of course, is not just take back control of our 12-mile limit but also of what's called our exclusive economic zone, the EEZ, which is a 200-mile limit. And before anybody complains, yes, I know that there's not 200 miles between us and France, it's either 200 miles or the line in between, whichever whichever it is. And this is what the EU desperately wants to hang on to because the common fisheries policy was put together precisely so that they could have access to our waters and our fishing stocks. And it's very important that we actually get those back and that we revitalise our fishing industry, which would, uh, you know, we lost tens of thousands of jobs, not just from fishermen themselves, but all the ancillary industries that service them, and of course from the selling the stocks of caught fish uh, as well. So we need to get that back. Now, in the last um, session in Parliament in January, there was a so-called reform to the Common Fisheries Policy Directive that went through, and UKIP MEPs actually added amendments to that, which was that actually we would leave the Common Fisheries Policy um, after the withdrawal agreement came into effect. Now, interestingly, Labour voted against those amendments, which were pretty clear, Uh, the Tories, the one Lib Dem and the Greens actually abstained so if there's anybody out there that thinks Labour in particular is on the side of the fishermen, uh, they are not the fishermen's friends, they're the fishermen's enemies the people who've defended um, our fishing industry in in the European Parliament over the years has been UKIP and the UKIP MEPs and will continue to do so because if we don't take back control of our 
exclusive economic zone and our fishing waters, then we haven't really got control and we haven't really left the EU. Are these the sort of areas that you imagine could get left behind in the negotiations where um, you've already got a suspicion that we're not going to leave um, in the way that uh, you've been campaigning to leave for many years and now there's a a suggestion because of the the kind of stalling we're seeing uh, in these negotiations that many people at the top table of debating this are passionate remainers underneath it all and will come up with a kind of a a compromise deal is this the sort of area you think that could lose out in those deals yeah I think it, it doesn't make the big headlines um, and yet it could just be lost in the small print somewhere exactly this is the kind of thing I mean there are a few main areas where we need to watch out and we can see whether we're really leaving or not one is on borders are we going to control our borders are we actually really going to be able to control who comes into the country common fisheries policy as we've just mentioned is a key one are we going to continue to pay money to the EU over what period of time? And then, of course, there's the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the European Union. Are we still going to be bound by their decisions uh, and that we still come under their jurisdiction? There's a number of key areas there where you can measure whether we actually really left the EU or not. Um, and as you can probably not in the slightest bit surprised, I take quite a hard, strong line on all of those things and haven't got time on this podcast now to explain them all, but I'm sure we'll be able to do that a bit more length in the future. Uh, just remind everybody where they can get in touch with you, Gerard. Uh, yeah, anybody that wants to comment on this or ask a question so that we can pose the question in the next uh, edition that we do, gerard.batten at btinternet.com. gerard.batten at btinternet.com. And you're on Twitter as well? Yes, indeed, at Gerard Batten, MEP. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Cheers, Gerard. Thanks, Ian.